We are in a series right now called Crossroads, and it's a journey to Easter. We're studying what are the events uh, of the days and, and today, the final hours of the things that happened in the life of Christ as it led up to Easter, uh, to his crucifixion and ultimately his resurrection that we'll celebrate on Easter Sunday in just a couple weeks from now. But that's kind of what this series is about. It's crossroads is what are the decision points along the way that, what are the decisions that God made even allowing or enacting these events? And then more importantly, what are the crossroads in our lives as we examine our God and how he, how Jesus interacted and went through all this for us, what does that mean for us? What do we learn about him? And then how should we as people respond? What are the cross point, crossroads, decision points in our lives? The more we understand who Jesus is that cause us to respond. Uh, this morning we're, gonna, we're at the place in the story where Jesus is now on trial. And we'll find today that there's several questions that the people who are interrogating him want to know. And the truth is, what we're looking at today is we're going to see how they misunderstood or at least didn't want to understand who Jesus is and how much that affected and changed and transferred, transformed their behaviors. The truth is what we're looking at today is when we understand the reality or the identity of someone, it often affects the response. I was thinking of a, a friend of mine who was telling me a story when he was uh, on vacation with his kids and in a pool and doing what all uh, parents, and, and certainly it's a, a job in my house where I had to do, it's you had to jump in the pool and swim with your kids, didn't matter the temperature of the pool, that's what you do. And uh, But one thing that you do when you're a dad in the pool is it, it's, it's written down in the code is you gotta throw your kids around in the pool. It, it's just, I don't know why, it's just innate in all of us. The kids like it, we like it. Um, and, and so you, you toss your kids around and my friend was telling me of the time when he was in kind of a crowded pool and was kind of going under the water, grabbing his kids, popping out and just launching them. And he said one time he got really like the perfect launch, went under and grabbed his kid under the armpits and jumped out of the water and just threw him across the pool and then looked down and saw his son next to him, <laughs> realizing he just launched some other kid across the pool. Sometimes when we get the identity wrong, our response doesn't match reality. I was thinking in, in another example of this, of this is now with one of my dogs. I um, have had golden retrievers. I love golden retrievers. The reason I love them is because they have huge hearts, small brains, and so they, they just love you as a person, and they love life, and nothing really goes wrong when you're a golden retriever, but I had one before the one I have now. Uh, he, we, I remember we were at a park, and he was, the other thing about golden retrievers is, is when you're outside in open space, they just, it's like heaven to them. It's the best thing in the world. They like to run. They don't know why. They're just happy. Um, but part of that running around is they also, at least in the case of my dogs, which I've always had male dogs, is they like to mark their territory. And they mark it all over the place. And even if there's a bush two feet away from the other one, it's good enough. He needs to mark that one as well. And so I had a dog who was, you guys are wondering, why are we talking about this on Sunday morning? Okay, I'm getting there. It's spiritual. So 
So we were out in the park, and he was running around and, and just happy and doing what he usually does, grabbing the ball, finding a tree on his way back. And, and I was sitting there in one of these parks, and there was this lady who I was talking with. She was sitting on the ground uh, kind of near us, and, and a dog lover, and her dog was running with our dog. And um, at one point, my dog, he ran back up to us, you know, with that golden retriever smile on their face. And he, he ran up to us. He, he kind of goes behind us, gets behind her, and lifts his leg. You know the Southwest commercials that how you want to get away? <laughs> there was a moment when I'm standing right about here and I look five feet away to this lady who's sitting on the ground and my dog who's behind her and he's ready to mark the territory on her back. <laughs> and it's amazing how quick your mind can move. My brain moved very quickly in the time it took him to lift his leg and me to see what's happening. I had already calculated how expensive this could all of a sudden be. That, okay, I'm going to have to buy a sweater, and who knows if there's going to be a lawsuit, and how are we going to get out of this, and all of these things. Should I just run really quick? Let's just go. We can, we can you know, I'll bleach his hair, whatever. We'll change identity. It's all these things. And I had already rehearsed my speech before he even did this. So it's kind of like, hey, whatever it takes, we'll buy you a new shirt. Here's an iPhone 7, whatever. Just please don't sue us for what's about to happen. And uh, he, you guys want to know the end of the story, of course. So... He did mark his territory. She kind of went, oh, I think your dog just, you know. And, and, and I went, oh, really? You played stupid for a second. <laughs> and just kind of said, I am so sorry. I don't know what to do. And of the seven billion people in the world, he picked the one who loved dogs so much. She goes, oh, it's no big deal. <laughs> Can you believe that? And she goes, I'm just going to go change. So she went to change, and I said, come on, Fido. My dog's name was Mickey, but I didn't want to give anything away. <laughs> Let's get out of here and not come back to this park ever again. <laughs> Sometimes when you have the mistaken identity of something, it leads to the wrong actions. <laughs> In this case, my dog mistaking her for a tree. <laughs> when the people are looking at Jesus they often, they didn't understand who he was. And so they didn't respond rightly. The question that we want to wrestle with for all of us this morning is, are we willing to really look at who Jesus is? And what does that belief in who he is, how does that change who we are? Are we willing to respond and allow the reality of who Jesus is to affect the response? That's what we want to look at today. So I want to invite you to pray with me before we get into the text. God, we thank you so much for today. I thank you that we can have fun together. We can laugh together. And Lord, I thank you that we can worship together. And Lord, I pray this morning that as we learn together, that your, my words would be your words. That Lord, you would draw us all closer to you. Help us grow in our belief in who you are and change us and transform us more and more into your image. We thank you and give you this time in your name. Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 22. We'll be there in 22 and 23 this morning. And before we, while you're finding your way there, let me just set the context a little bit of uh, Jesus had now, he's in Jerusalem. It's on Passover week, and we looked at a few weeks ago that Passover was significant because to the Jewish people, it was a festival of freedom. It was to remember their deliverance out of slavery into freedom. But it also took on a significance of a very a future hope and expectation. 
They believed that the Messiah would reveal himself on Passover and that there would be a new Passover and a new Exodus so that God would ultimately deliver their people once and for all from the spiritual bondage into spiritual freedom. So that was the context of what they're celebrating, the feast, when all of these events are taking place. Very symbolic of how Jesus takes this event and claims it to be his revealing who he is as the Messiah. So in these events then, we find him from there. He went to the garden and he was praying, um, just praying, Father, would you give us wisdom and and teach me, uh, uh, give me the strength to follow through with what you've called us to do. And then we looked at, he got arrested. Last week we saw that how he was betrayed and then rejected by one of his close disciples. And now Jesus is in the, uh, he's been arrested by the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. So they used some Roman soldiers to help them in this. And now they are interrogating him. Now, we're gonna read just the account in the book of Luke. And the account in the book of Luke is a condensed version. If you read some of the other gospels, there's a longer, there's some more of the conversation There's some more details, but when we put it all together, we find that he starts with a trial that happens at night with the Jewish leaders, and that was illegal according to Jewish custom and law. You were not allowed to have a trial at night, but they found that the only way they could do do this without upsetting all the crowds was to do it under the cover of darkness. We'll find in just a moment that then they reenact, not reenact, but kind of have the same trial in the daylight to try to legitimize it, at least from the onlookers to see. And then he's going to go to the Roman governor so that it now has, has some legitimacy. He's going to take him to a guy named Pilate and a guy named Herod and then back to, or then on his way to the cross. Now, the reason I tell all of you that is we're going to read it. Sometimes when you hear all this, you think, wait, how did all of this happen in a short amount of time? And I wanted just to help you with that. We have a multimedia presentation for you this morning to help you. So Roxanne, fire up the slides for us. We have a picture of what, this is an archeologist rendering of, of kind of how they look at the remains. This is where everything that happened in this story. I want you to see it, and I'm even using a laser pointer from the 1990s. So we are high tech this morning, so I want you to see what's going on here. But it's important that we understand this, that it kind of just helps paint the picture. So what we have here, this is a rendering of what the temple looked like at the time of Jesus. So this is here. Um, On the outside of this temple, you can see this is called the Temple Mount. This still exists to this day. So when you see pictures of Jerusalem that now has a mosque with the Golden Dome, that is located right here. The Golden Dome is actually on this end of it. But, so this is called the Temple Mount. The temple was there in the time of Christ. Right here is called the Praetorium. This is where uh, Pilate I- existed, where he lived. The governor, he was a Roman soldier. Um, he was here, and and he was a Roman governor, had Roman soldiers with him. They were stationed here, very close to the Temple Mount. One of the ways that you could control a population is to be close to where the center of their activity would be. So they had built this. Uh, Herod had it built, and it was really next to the Temple Mount. There's remains of this. Parts of this are still in existence to this day, and there's um, some uh, inscription that makes us know that Pilate Pontius Pilate indeed existed and was governor at the time when Jesus was crucified and was roughly here. The priests' houses were probably somewhere up here. We don't have, the archaeologists haven't recreated every house, but we know that they lived close to the temple and this would be the wealthier part of the city. That's where they would be. 
Uh, there's actually even some remains of this uh, ramp that are still there today. Not all of it, but parts of it. So this is just a few blocks away to the temple, right next to where Pontius Pilate would be. And then finally, you find here there's some city gates. These were gates that existed in the time of Christ. Uh, there is a, a church over one of these to, right now. It's a Lutheran church. But right here is where most believe is, archaeologists would affirm, was where Calvary is, where Golgotha is. And the tomb of Christ would be right in that area. So you can see that it's just a few blocks away from where this trial took place. And the reason I want to show you all this, because sometimes we read all these details and we think, how in the world did Jesus have one trial, then go to have a trial with Pilate, and then go back? Like, what is going on here? This is all taking place in a relatively uh, confined area. And those of you who've traveled to Israel, just for some added benefit, this Remains of a wall that's about here today still exists, but it's actually, there's a new wall that was built in the 1400s, and the old walls are far beyond this. This is all within the old city to this day. So that's kind of where all of this takes place. A one added slide I want to show you just kind of for fun. This one, uh, the next slide here, is this is on the floor in uh, Pilate's Praetorium. This is in where he had the soldiers, where they stayed, where we know this floor is dates to the time of Christ. And the writings on the ground there, that is just like an ancient tic-tac-toe game. Uh, it's a game that the soldiers were playing. And it kind of gives you a, an idea of a little bit of the, the nature of these soldiers who are sitting around, you know, they're just soldiers. And they're wasting time at this point, at some point, scratching a, a game into the floor while they're you know, waiting or on watch or on duty or something. But it just shows you the kind of the nature of the type of people that were there. They're, they're just, they're soldiers. They're probably in their teens or early 20s and, and they're assigned to this area. So that's just some of what we know about this story. So now we're going to look at Luke chapter 22. And I want to walk through parts of this story and with a little bit of that in mind to see where everything is happening. Starts in Luke 22. Let's pick it up in verse 66. It says, when day came, the councils of the elders of the people, they gathered together, both chief priests and the experts of the law. So this is what we call the Sanhedrin. It's all the uh, Jewish leaders. And they led Jesus to their council and said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you would not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. In this section, we find the first of four questions that they're going to ask. We're going to look at their questions and then we're going to bring them into what does that mean for us? What are the questions we need to ask today? The first of this question is, are you the Christ or are you the Messiah? The Christ means the anointed one. The belief of the Jews was that the Messiah would come and deliver them. Now, they knew that Jesus already claimed to be Messiah. They knew that many people in the crowds were, uh, call, cried out and called to him as the Messiah. So they're asking, tell us, just say it. Tell us, are you the Christ? Jesus essentially says, I'm not going to tell you. What he's really saying is, we've already had this conversation. If I tell you again, you're not going to believe it because I've already said it. And if I ask you a question, you won't answer it because we know from other stories where he's asked them questions, say like, hey, let's reason about this. And they refuse to actually engage in real dialogue about his identity. So their first question is, are you the Messiah? But the truth is they didn't really want to know. They just wanted to start this conversation. Verse 69, we see the second question. Jesus says, I will not answer you, but from now on, the Son of Man, which was the term often used for him being the Son of God, 
will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they asked the second question, and they said, so are you the son of God then? And he answered to them and said, you say that I am. Some of your translations might be, it is as you say. Essentially what he's saying is, hey, came from your lips, and that's true. He's affirming and just saying, yeah, you've said it. You got it. You got it right. Are you the son of God is the question they asked. Now, this is different than saying, are you a son of God? There's this belief that we are all adopted as sons and daughters of God. It's not something that, it's not like God is our actual father, but we're adopted in the spiritual family. This language here is he's saying, no, I am the son of God, the only son of God. There is something different about Jesus, and that's what he is claiming. So they said, oh, so you are saying you're the son of God. He says, yeah, you got it right. So they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it from our, for ourselves from his own lips. Now, according to Jewish law, there was no punishment for claiming to be Messiah. Indeed, there had been people and still are from time to time in the Jewish faith who will pop up claiming to be Messiah or some would believe are Messiahs. So there was no punishment for that. But to claim to be the son of God or to be deity was punishable according to their law by death. So they said, we've heard it from his own lips. Now we know the only punishment for him should be death. But there was a problem. They weren't in charge. The Romans were. They were not allowed to enact any sort of capital punishment on the population. That was under the jurisdiction of the Romans. So they had to get the Romans on board with what's going on. So it said the group of them rose up in verse 1 of chapter 23 and brought Jesus before Pilate. So Pilate is the governor over this region of uh, Israel at the time. He's assigned there by Caesar. And they began to accuse Jesus, saying, we found this man subverting our nation, forbidding us to pay the tribute tax to Caesar, and claiming that he himself is Christ, a king. So notice their accusations here are actually false accusations. They're saying he forbids us from paying our taxes. Actually, that's quite the opposite. Jesus himself when asked if they should pay taxes, says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what's God's. In other words, if your life belongs to God, let your whole life be in God's hands, but your money, your stuff, if it's given to you by Caesar, give it to him. If you owe him taxes, pay it. So Jesus actually said the exact opposite to what they're accusing of him, him of in that case. But they're tying that in to some of the truth. He says he's the Messiah, a king. So Pilate looked at Jesus and he asked him the third question of the day. And it's, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus replies to him exactly the way he replied to the Jewish leaders. You said it and you got it right. Came out of your lips. Now we know according to the book of John that the conversation with Pilate was a little bit longer. Pilate actually said, so what kind of king are you? What does that mean to be king of, Jew of the Jews? And Jesus responded and said, actually, my kingdom's not of this earth. In other words, Pilate, if Jesus said, yeah, I'm the king of the Jews and left it there, Pilate should say, wait a minute. No, you can't be king because I'm over this area. Caesar's over you. There's a problem. But we know the conversation was deeper. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate looked at Jesus, according to the other gospels, and said, don't you know that I have the authority to kill you if I want? I have the authority to set you free. And Jesus said, you have no authority but what that which has been given to you by my Father. 
So here, though, what Pilate is asking is, are you a king? What kind of king are you? Verse 4, so Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, he said, I find no basis for an accusation against this man. But they persisted in saying he incites the people by teaching throughout all Judea. It started in Galilee and it's ended up here. Now when Pilate heard this, he asked whether, a man was, whether this man was a Galilean. When he learned that he was from Herod's jurisdiction, he sent them to Herod, who also happened to be in Jerusalem at this time. So here's another character to the story. Herod, this is not Herod the Great who built all this, one of his sons, who's, he is the Tetrarch, who's basically the governor or king over the northern part of Israel, over Galilee. So Pilate now sees an opportunity. See, sometimes people see this story and think Pilate's actually a reasonable good guy. You read it and say, well, Pilate's kind of, you know, he's, he's listening to truth, he's debating with Jesus, but he's trying to find the right answer. No, what he's doing is shirking his responsibility as a leader. And he goes, oh, he's a Galilean? Great, I'm going to send him to Herod. That way he can make the decision, not me. So he sends him to this guy named Herod who happened to be in town. He was in town, why? Because it was Passover. Everyone of Jewish descent, if they could, were in Jerusalem. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him because he'd heard about him and was hoping to see him perform some miraculous sign. So Herod questioned him at considerable length. The fourth question we're looking at today is this one, and we don't know the actual question. It's just Herod had many questions for him. We're going to look at what I think he's really asking in a moment. But Jesus gave him no answer. This, by the way, is fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 7. It's a whole chapter uh, about the Messiah. It said he's, that the Messiah will stand silent before his accusers, not even offering a defense. So Jesus gives Herod no answer. And then verse 10, the chief priests, the experts of the law were there. They were vehemently ex- accusing Jesus Even Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt. They mocked him. Then dressing him in elegant clothes, Herod sent him back to Pilate. So they dress him up like a king and say, oh, he thinks he's a king. So let's dress him like a king and send him back to Pilate and say, here's your king. And that very day, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other. For prior to this, they had been enemies. In our teaching team, we read this and said, hey, look, even Jesus brings enemies together. Isn't that nice? (laughs) Pilate called the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. When I examined him before you, I did not find this man guilty of anything you accused him of doing. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, he's done nothing deserving of death. I will therefore have him flogged and release him. Even that, he wasn't deserving of being flogged, but Pilate is trying to say, like, Listen, okay, okay, I know you don't like him, so here's the deal. We'll go ahead and beat him and then give them back, all right? Let's let's just reach a compromise on this. Verse 17, some of your Bibles may not have this verse. It's maybe inserted just to give context, but it says there was a tradition that on the Passover, a prisoner would be released. And so on verse 18, everyone shouted together, the people who were listening, said, take this man away, release Barabbas for us. This was a man who'd been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. So Pilate addressed them once again because he wanted to release Jesus, not Barabbas. 
And they started shouting, crucify him. And a third time he said, what? What wrong has he done? I found him guilty of no crime deserving death. I will therefore flog him and release him. Listen, flogging's not nice. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll beat him. He'll get a good one. That's, come on. But they were insistent, demanding with loud shouts that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. We find in the other versions that it says that Pilate washed his hands and said, I'm not guilty of this man. Now, I want to tell you something here again. Pilate here is not innocent. He's deciding here because if he really believes Jesus is innocent, as a good leader, he would say, wait, 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 wait. He's innocent. We're not going to let this happen in my jurisdiction. But what Pilate is thinking is, okay, what is going to keep the peace the best? Should we just let this guy Jesus be crucified and killed and just make something up and just get it over with and keep these leaders happy? Or do we want to, you know, he's weighing it and he decides, I'd rather just explain why we had him crucified to keep these people happy because they can really be a pain. And I don't want them to cause more trouble for me. I just want this to be over with. Just fine, crucify him. So Pilate here is not the good guy. He's not the reasonable one. The other thing I want to just make a cultural note is this is not indicative of the entire Jewish nation or all the people. It's several leaders who wanted this to ha happen that because Jesus was messing with their way of life. And all of this, though, happens under the direction of God the Father. None of this would happen if God didn't ultimately want it to happen. So that's a story that we have to this day. Now, what are the four? I want to go back to the four questions and bring those into today for application of why it matters for us. So the first question that we saw asked is, Jesus, are you the Messiah? I'm going to give us our question today that's something a little different. It's, can we hope in Jesus? See, because the whole idea of the Messiah was this, that the Messiah was the one to come and bring great hope for their nation, to deliver them out of the bondage of now the Roman oppressors. They thought once and for all the Messiah would come and set them free and they no longer would have to deal with foreign governments over them, that they could be the people that God had called them to be. If you recall back to the Christmas season as we looked at this story, all the prophecies about the Messiah were prophecies of hope. So though the people were in darkness, that they will see a great light. This great light will be the Son of God who comes to us, the Messiah, and will bring hope for all the nations. So the question of the Messiah is really a question about hope. Are you the one that we can find hope in? Now for the people who are accusing Jesus, the problem was they wanted the Messiah to look different. They didn't like Jesus' version of the Messiah. They wanted a Messiah who would strike Pilate dead, to free him from Caesar, to uphold their uh, law, their religious law that then would uh, kind of elevate the religious teachers and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all of those. But Jesus' form of being the Messiah, is he was bringing hope to the hopeless. He was loving the sinners and the outcast. He was condemning the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. It was not the kind of Messiah they wanted. He was cramping their style. And so when they looked at Jesus, they had a mistaken identity. They were staring at the real Messiah, but it wasn't the Messiah they wanted. I wonder how many of us wrestle with this question today. 
Can we hope in Jesus? Can we still find hope in who Jesus is in today's world? Or is Jesus just a cultural thing? Something, someone we sing about? Someone that we think about from time to time? Or does he actually bring hope? Because a life of following Christ and and being transformed and changed, the life that Jesus modeled is very counter to the life of what we see in this world today. So living this life, can we still have hope? Does Jesus bring hope to your relationships? Does it change how you interact in your marriage? Does it change how you interact as a parent? Does it change how you lead your business? Do you find hope in Jesus or is it just a Sunday morning thing? If you are single and kind of navigating life as a single person, do you find hope in Jesus or do you find Jesus cramps your style and actually makes it more difficult? Or do we ultimately say, Jesus, if you are the Messiah, what, what hope do we find in you today? And the life of Christ is very different than the world we see. But I believe the life of Christ lived out makes a major difference. Still to this day. I think even on superficial levels or small, I shouldn't say superficial, but small levels. Uh, you know, one of the things that I love to do, I love to coach baseball. Uh, it's fun. My coaching career could soon be over as my kids are getting older. But I still like to coach Little League, and I've shared many times. For me, it's not just about coaching Little League because I like to have control. Actually, one, the main reason is because I, I want to have a bunch of kids whose parents drop them off to play baseball with me. I just want someone to play. And, and that's the way you do it, by coaching. But one of the things about coaching for me really is, God, how can I use this opportunity? Who are the kids and the families that you are going to assign to me for four months of the year? And even going into the draft, I've shared with you before how I pray going into the draft, like, Lord, just give me the kids and the families that you want me to have, as long as they can hit a curveball and pitch well. And, and well, you got to ask. If you ask not, you have not. So you want to, and so, but I always pray, God, I, I want this. And then after the draft, I, I think I've wrestled with this in front of you before. Then I often question like, oh, should I pick that kid? Or maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe my team could have been better. And the Lord always reminds me like, didn't you pray about this? Can't you just trust that the kids you have are the kids I want you to have? And then now what are you going to do with it, Ryan? As a coach, are you going to coach in a way that looks like everyone else? Or do you have hope in Jesus that runs much deeper than a lot of people who also coach? Because you know what? My identity actually doesn't rise and fall on our, on our season record and how if we win or lose baseball games. As long as we don't lose all of them, my, my identity doesn't rest in that. <laughs> but there's a deeper hope. There's a peace that I can have. I can look at these students and families and see it as a bigger thing. That this is about building this, these families up. It's about introducing them to something that's fun, a sport, but it's also interacting with them in a way that I believe Jesus would coach. To bring hope to even that situation. When we interact in our relationships in a way that Christ, we bring hope to that, that Christ would, we bring hope to that situation. When we're able to forgive, when we're able to admit our wrongs, when we're able to say, hey, I don't always have to be the strongest person in the world. There's times when I can be weak so that Christ can be strong in me. And there's, we can bring hope to each situation. The question is, can we still hope in Jesus? Or do you hope in yourself and your own strength and your own power, your own identity? Or can we step away from that?
The next question that was asked was a question of, so are you the son of God? Are you God? The question that I have, the modern question is, can we believe what Jesus said? See, because if he's God, that's very different than being a wise moral teacher. If, if Jesus is a wise moral teacher, we can take his words into account. We can say, well, that's some good advice, but come on, it's, you know, it's the 21st century, it's San Diego, it's very different. He, his words are nice, but they don't really apply. But if he's God, can we believe what he said and trust what he said? Can we take the way that he teaches us how to live and bring that into everyday life? Because if he's God, that's, that should be transformative to us. You could take my words as just hopefully every once in a while I say something wise. You know, you can take that into account. But the words of Christ are life-changing words. They should affect everything about us. When he talks about being people of peace, people of compassion, people of love, people who fully trust that God is the judge, not us. And we bring those words and, and not just take them to heart, but be transformed and changed by them. The question is, can we believe what Jesus said is true? Can we believe that? Are you God? That's the question. If he's not, okay. But if he is, wow. What does that do for us today? If it doesn't do anything different, we want to examine our lives. If you've been a Christian for 30, 40 years, two years, look back. What's different in your life? How have the words of Christ transformed and changed you? Or are you basically fundamentally the same person you were 20 years ago? If you are, either you are already perfected and you've just been staying on top, which congratulations, good for you. Or maybe you need to re-examine and just say, God, I need you to transform and change me. And it's not about saying, well, come on, Ryan, look around. I'm way further along than the other guy. I'm not worried about the other guy. I'm worried about you. You don't need to worry about the other guy. We all have our own path, our own journey. How is Jesus transforming and changing you? How is his word, are his words making an impact in your life? We want to be people who are transformed by that. When I look back and I think often, as the more and more I look at how Jesus is, how much more gracious am I than when I first became a Christian? How much less of a Pharisee am I when I first became a Christian? And I looked around at others like, why aren't they living this way? If I'm giving up all this stuff to live my life for Christ, why are all the other Christians who've always been Christians not doing it too? Something's not right here. Until the words of Jesus started transforming me. Quit being a Pharisee. Quit thinking you're self-righteous. Worry about yourself. Be transformed by what Christ has done in you. Can we believe his words? The next question that was asked, this was by Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? The ultimate question what he was really asking is, okay, if you're king, what kind of king? Do you have authority? The question we have for us today is, can we trust in Jesus in a changing world? See, the world's different. It's changing. 20 years ago, our country was different than it is today. 50 years ago, it was radically different. 100 years ago, could we recognize it? There was a time when many of you probably remember it when 
believing in God was accepted and believing in Christian was kind of, being in Christ and being, being a Christian was kind of normal for our existence. But now being a Christian, we're actually kind of on the outside now, more and more so, especially in the West Coast. So we are faced with a question that says, can we tr trust in Jesus in a changing world? Does Jesus have authority over the world in which we live today? Do we believe he does? I gotta tell you, um, it breaks my heart when I see the number of Christians who are struggling with Jesus, not because of Jesus, but because of everyone else around them. And, you know, my wife and I have friends on, on Facebook, and, you know, we know it's a divided world now, and people, everyone has an opinion, so everyone's an expert. Thank you, social media, for that. <laughs> and some people have very strong opinions, and sometimes we look at it and we think, do these people know what we do for a living? Because the things they say... Like, oh, if only we could get rid of all the Christians, this country would be better. You know, stuff like that. And we're like, hi, just checking in. How are you doing? <laughs> I haven't seen you lately because I've been preaching at church to Christians. But. <laughs> but there's a lot of that. In fact, I've had more conversations in the last couple of years with Christians, some with even in our family here, who are wrestling with the identity as Christian, not because of Jesus, but because of the label of Christian and what it means to a lot of people now. Because being labeled Christian is lumped in with a lot of things that aren't Christian. And this isn't a statement against, you know, anyone on the right or anyone on the left. This is a statement against people misunderstanding who Jesus. Remember, if we get the identity wrong, our response is wrong. And we live in a world where the label Christian is starting to mean a lot of things that Jesus would say, that is not me. But I've wrestled and I've talked with some of you. In fact, this year I talked to someone who said, I no longer want to be a part of a Christian church because I don't, I don't like the label evangelical Christian. I can't take it anymore, so we're leaving church. And I thought, well, where are you going to go? And they said, we don't know if we'll find what we really like. And I thought, that's really, it breaks my heart, one, because there's something bigger there, right? But this world, all of a sudden, even, you know what evangelical is supposed to mean? This is what it means. Someone who believes in, the, believes in the Bible and believes that Jesus is the way to salvation. Essentially, that's the fundamental what it means. It doesn't mean that you vote any certain way. It doesn't mean you support any sort of government. It means we believe in Jesus and that he will save us from our sins. That's a good, yeah, that is an amen. But it's been distorted, and so it's difficult. So as us as followers of Jesus have to say, do we trust that Jesus is still, ha still has authority in a changing world, or are we going to say, we've got to get out of here. We've got to run. We're going to give up on our faith because it's just too hard. Or are we going to lean in? Are we going to be thoughtful Christians? Are we going to be Christians who have some intellectual honesty and really address tough issues, but say, we just want the life of Christ lived out in us? And we reject any sort of uh, distorted view of who Jesus is. And yeah, there's times where we're, we're, there's times I think, man, Lord, do you need me to stand up for you and kind of, you know, defend you a little bit here? And he looks at me like, seriously, you? <laughs> I've got better. <laughs> but every single day we defend him when we let the life of Christ live out on us in reality. 
when the true identity of Christ, we respond to the real identity, then our response is appropriate. And that's what brings hope in the world. Can we trust that Jesus, can we trust Jesus in our changing world? I've recommended before, but I want to recommend once again a book to you. It's called Good Faith. I highly recommend it. I think it answers this question really in a thoughtful, intelligent way. It's written by a guy named Gabe Lyons. The tagline of it is, being a Christian in a world that thinks you're irrelevant or extreme. I don't know if that resonates with any of you. If it doesn't, get out of your house and meet someone. So that's all. (laughs) But he really leans in and talks about how, how can we have firm center but soft edges? How do we have a faith where we really love people where they're at the way Jesus did, but we believe the truth about Jesus and scripture, and then we live out this faith in a practical way in a changing world? The question for us, can we trust Jesus in a changing world? I'm convinced the answer to that is yes. We can. But we need to have the boldness to step out. And there's times we need to not have to defend Jesus. We can just trust that he's got it. And we need to live out our life of faith. And we need to not worry so much about labels that are thrown our way. Live truth. And watch the difference that makes in the people who know you. It makes a difference. Last question was Herod with many questions. I love this because Herod said he wanted to see Jesus for a long time. And he had many questions for him. But what did he want? He wanted to see him perform a miracle. He wanted gimmicks. He's like, hey, I heard you do some pretty cool things. Show me. Here's some water. Can you make wine? Come on, Jesus, do something. Do something. Show me a little miracle, just a little miracle. See, what Herod really wanted to know is, does this Jesus actually make a difference in life, in real life? Or is this Jesus just a gimmicky Jesus who performs some tricks? He's a traveling salesman. Or is he going to make a real difference in life? The question we have to face is that. What difference does Jesus make? Does he make any difference in the way we live as people of Seacoast? Can North San Diego County be transformed because there's people who say, the real Jesus, we've encountered him, and when we see the real identity, we have a proper response, and that changes things. He makes a real difference in our marriages. He makes a real difference in our relationships. teaches us how to forgive. He makes a real difference in our businesses, in our everyday life. We all have to wrestle with that this morning. Does he make a real difference? He should. If he doesn't, we want to re-examine. How are you getting to know the life and the words of Christ? Are you leaning in? Are you really trying to know him and be transformed by him? Or is it just a Sunday morning thing? He's not making a difference. I want to challenge you to reread about him and say, Lord, if, if I really believe this, what would be different in my life? Now, I also want to give you, leave you with some encouragement, though. We often talk about here, we don't want to be about self-help and self-improvement. We don't want to be a church that just says, okay, so get with it, Seacoast. Next week, come back and be more Jesus-like, okay? You got seven days, get it straight. We don't want to be about that because we believe that's the Holy Spirit of God who transforms and changes us. The more we try to work to change ourselves and perfect ourselves, we're going to 
run into the wall over and over again. We're going to get frustrated and eventually say, maybe it doesn't make a difference. This is exhausting. I do believe that we should increasingly look in the image of God. That's biblical. But it's in the power of the Spirit transforming and changing us as we surrender more and more of our lives to who he is. And here's the good news. I want to invite the worship team to start coming back up. The good news is that God knows you'll mess this up. The good news that, is that Jesus knows you'll get him wrong from time to time. What you think Jesus would do and how he would respond and what he said, you're going you're gonna to have times where he just looks at you and says, seriously, that's what you got from that? <laughs> that's how you think that's, my life has lived out through you? Really? See, he already knows that we're going to do this imperfect, imperfectly. And we're not asking you to be, as the term we use often here, is the spiritual Navy SEALs. The elite Christians of the world. <laughs> I mean, that'd be awesome if God keep, can, continues to move in us to be that way. But the truth is, we just want to be people who humbly bow before our Lord. Say, we trust you in this world and want to be changed by you. But here's a cool thing. Here's how the story ends. Remember how it ended today. A guy named Barabbas who was guilty of insurrection and murder, which by the way, the one thing that the Romans crucified people for was insurrection and murder. If you were to start a rebellion, the punishment for you is crucifixion on a cross. So Barabbas had the rightful uh, sentence given to him that he would be crucified because he committed the crime. Yet he ran free that day. And the one person who was guilty of nothing took that cross that was made for Barabbas, already prepared to be crucified on it, and took the innocent one in his place. See, this whole story is not about how we can make ourselves better. It's how Jesus has paid the price so that we can be changed. See, we are Barabbas. We are the ones who deserve the cross. Yet Jesus said, set him free, set her free. I'll take it and I'll be there. This is the Jesus that we face. And will the real identity of Jesus have a real response in your life and in mine? Let's pray. I invite you to stand with me as we pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that the story doesn't end with us needing to somehow improve ourselves. The story doesn't even end with you giving up. The story ends with you saying, it is finished, is what we'll look at next week. And it ends with someone else on the cross other than one who deserved to be there. And Lord, we misunderstand you so often. We ask that this week you would open our eyes to see who you really are so we could respond to you the right way and be radically changed by the God who gave us everything already. So we thank you, Lord, and give you this time. In Jesus' name, amen.